Dr. Suzanne Simard is a professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia. In 2016, she gave a TED Talk about her groundbreaking discovery of how trees communicate with each other. Most recently, Dr. Simard has published a book called Finding the Mother Tree. Suzanne Simard, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. We've just been enjoying your new book and, of course, your body of work on this subject. You were able to put into words these unseen things that one may have sensed and felt walking through an old growth forest, that silence and wonder, and to just think that under each footstep is this whole symphony of communication going on. So mm -hmm. just tell us, how do trees communicate with each other? How do they talk and how did you come to decipher their secret language? They have many ways of communicating with each other. Think of yourself as a tree. You've got neighbors that you live beside for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and none of you can move around. So you just have to communicate in other ways. And so trees have evolved to have these ways of communicating with each other. And they're sophisticated, they're nuanced. They include things like transmitting information through these root networks that link them together. They transmit information to each other through the air. So they perceive each other and they communicate and then they respond to each other. And that information, that language is, is complex and we don't even understand the full language. But what we do know is that they communicate by sharing information and resources, how well they're doing, how stressed out they might be, how healthy they are, what their identity is, their species, whether they're related or not. And that information, that understanding of each other affects how they behave around each other and they adjust their behavior accordingly. So all these behaviors and responses are really about increasing their fitness or their ability to survive and reproduce and still be here in multiple generations moving forward. So it's very complex and it's not that much different than the way we communicate, right? As human beings, we have many ways of communicating. We talk to each other, we write to each other, we have body language, we have smells. <laughs> Same with trees. They have all that arsenal for communicating as well. It's so interesting because we think of them as static, but they can actually communicate. You go into detail in your book, but they can send warnings and they protect the mother tree. Mm -hmm. What is the mother tree and how do mother trees function within the ecosystem? That's a great question. Mother trees are simply the biggest, oldest trees in the forest. And the reason that we call them mother trees is we've looked at how they're linked to all the other trees through these fungal networks. And the fungi are essential part of this ecosystem. So these big old trees have got big fungal networks because they have a huge root system. They have huge crowns. That's the photosynthetic leaf area that sends energy down into this root system and into this network. And then that energy is dispersed through the forest and the information as well. And so that importance is by their sheer size and age is related to their energy, really their energy field. These old trees have multiple functions in forests. They communicate, they facilitate regeneration of the forest, but they also do other things. For example, they sequester lots of carbon more than the other trees in the forest. So they're really special for that. And they also have a lot of biodiversity associated with them. So even all the fungi on their roots, there are many, many thousands of species 
species. And as the tree gets older, the fungal species turn over. They have different species that are really associated with old, old trees. And the crowns of the trees, the lichens, the bacteria, the creatures that live in the crowns also go through changes as the tree ages. So the whole community of forests comes an old growth community in and of itself. You mentioned the forest's ability to absorb carbon. And Mm -hmm. one of those decisions is not to cut down these old forests. They're way more valuable to us standing up than being converted into smoke and turned into cash agriculture crops or turned into toilet paper or even two by fours. At some point, we'll lose the ability of these forests to support our life-sustaining systems, right? Because they generate our oxygen, they clean our water, they store the carbon, they house the biodiversity. With them gone, we're gone. So even if it's for our own selfish reasons, we have got to change what we're doing in our forests. That's such a strong message. And I hadn't realized the extent to which it's happening in Canada, where you are. Your respect for forests, your understanding of the beauty and wonder of nature, it was from the time you were a child. Well, I grew up in the forest. I was so fortunate that I came from a family that just lived in the forest. I lived in what are called the inland rainforests of Canada. Between the West Coast and the Rocky Mountains, there's this whole series of mountain ranges where they get a lot of rainfall. So these are the iconic old growth forests with huge trees. I grew up in those forests. As a child, my dad and my grandfather and my great-grandfather were horse loggers. They did selective logging where they took out a few trees and sold them to raise their families. So I got to know the forest from both perspectives, right? just as a kid loving the forest and also seeing how my relatives made their living from the forest without destroying it at the same time. That was really amazing for me. I could see that the forest has this incredible regenerative capacity. Even when you take a few trees out, it seeds back in and recovers beautifully. If you take too much, then it doesn't recover as well. And that is basically what has happened is we've shifted away from these more sustainable, careful practices of just taking what we need to practices where we're exploiting forests and taking far more than we need. Changing that attitude from an exploitation to a more regenerative attitude is what we need to do in order to get back to the beauty of the forest and let the beautiful forest do its work to make a a livable planet for us. You speak about the role mother trees play in regeneration, and it's really like they are the elders and they look out for the upstart. Right. These big old trees, they make cones every year. You know, once trees mature, they all make cones with seeds in them. Those seeds fall to the ground. They germinate. Then the little roots that go into the soil within a month or two, they tap into this huge, vast network that's supported by the old trees. So these mycorrhizal fungi, which are beneficial fungi for trees, all trees all over the world require these in order to take up nutrients and water from the soil in exchange for photosynthate or energy. And so these little trees, these little seedlings, no bigger than the roofing nail, will tap into this vast network and benefit from the ability of it to take up these nutrients while these seedlings are still young and not able to make their own food yet. They're supported then by these old trees and it's their network. And the old trees also send them resources. They send carbon energy. They send them nutrients, phosphorus and nitrogen and water just so they can get that little head start. They also send the little seedlings information. These old mother trees, they know which ones are their own kin which are their own seedlings, and they can favor those seedlings. They actually make elbow room for them. They bring their roots back and make space for their offspring to grow and and get a head start. But they also do that for other members of the community, not just their own. So it's a very complex community-based interaction among all these old trees and their neighbors. 
It's very beautiful. We were talking before we, we began the formal interview about how I've always felt that trees are almost like people. I think about our microbiome and we're only really mm -hmm. discovering its importance. And it mm -hmm. seems like the fungi in the forest play this central role as well. Yes, exactly. I mean, trees are microbiomes too. You're absolutely right. We are as well. That just means that we're consortiums of many different creatures of species. A tree is a consortium of the, the fungi, the bacteria, the endophytes in the cells, the, the creatures living on those trees. They all perform functions that help the tree have a favorable environment to, to live and grow in and all the creatures that are associated with them. They're all in this big cycle and they're all connected as one living organism. And when trees in their relationship they live in societies, much like in our own human societies. They have different roles, they have different functions, and they work together to make the system a very functioning whole. Like I said before, you know, functions in cleaning our air and cleaning our water and storing carbon and cycling nutrients, all the cycles of life, the big biogeochemical cycles are completely intertwined and dependent on healthy forests on our planet. Isn't nature wonderful? If you really had to invent some technology like a tree, you couldn't think of all the functions, all renewable, everything. We just have to learn to respect it more. Yeah, I mean, think about it, right? These trees have evolved over millions of years, just like we've evolved, right? From the first prokaryotic and eukaryotic cell and the co-evolution of eukaryotic cells into higher level organisms, including trees and eventually human beings and large mammals and so on. We have these common ancestors and we've developed these mechanisms and trees have highly evolved mechanisms for taking the light from the sun's energy, converting it into chemical energy, which drives all of the other life on earth that we see. So these trees are absolutely essential in like there are energy capture systems that make fossil fuels, that make wood, that provide food for us to live in, the air that we breathe. So they are highly, highly evolved and intricate, if we want to call them machines or organisms that do this. And we can't reinvent this stuff, right? I know that people are thinking about how can we invent a machine that's going to take CO2 back out of the environment and store it so that we can get our CO2 levels. Well, actually, we have these beautiful forests doing that for us already. And why are we cutting them down? I mean, we need some of those products in order to survive and live and provide housing and clothing and food for ourselves. But we don't have to take it all. In fact, we're taking so much that we're destroying our own life support systems. So it's a time for us to stand back as human beings and say, you know what? It's not an endless resort. We need these functioning ecosystems. We got to be at least as smart as the trees but we're definitely not. The trees and the bees too. We have many wonderful things in nature that we're just not supporting. I want to go back to that because I'm sure you've seen the decline over the years since you were a child in bee population. I think that Jackie wants to come in. She's excited to ask you something. Hi, congratulations on the publication of your book, Finding Thanks, the Mother Tree. I know a few moments ago, you had spoken about how trees have had to evolve and adapt over the centuries in order to survive. And in this age of the sixth extinction, where there is such unsustainable logging, I was wondering if you think there's a possibility that trees will adapt in a new way so that if the mother trees are mostly gone, that they could survive without the presence and resources of the mother tree, if that would be possible. It would be a different kind of forest. You know, it wouldn't be as resilient of a forest. For example, 
old mother trees have been around for a long time, right? Some of the oldest trees in the world are thousands of years old, the bristle cone pine, 5,000 years. And so they've seen a lot of climatic changes, a lot of environmental changes, and they have adapted and evolved with those changes. And that code for that evolution is in the seeds. It's in the seeds of those trees. And so those seeds are what are going to allow the trees to adapt and evolve into the future as climate changes. If we cut all those trees down and lose those cones and seeds, then we're really cutting ourselves off and truncating the ability of trees to adapt and evolve as climate changes. So we need them. We absolutely need these old trees. It would be like having no parents around. You know, if you were a human society, you can't have kids without parents. So we need them. The other thing is we are logging and we're all taking a lot of these old trees because the most valuable ones in the marketplace, are the ones we go after first, and there's a long history of exploitation like that, but we need to really rethink that because they're most valuable also from the ecological point of view, from their ability to foster regeneration. So I can't emphasize enough that we need to change course on how we're affecting our forest before we lose these resources. I mean, we've already lost a lot. But the thing about forests is they can also regenerate, right? We can keep those old legacies there to help the forest change and adapt as climate changes. They're going to need our help as much as possible because historically, the paleoecology records show that there's no way they're going to keep up with the velocity of climate change as far as adaptation and migration go. So we have to save the seed and we also have to help migrate the seed in order for these trees to create healthy forests for the future to continue to do the ecosystem services that we need them to do. And your feeling about GM? So genetically modified trees, is that what you mean? Just GM in general. Yeah. So as far as trees go, I know that where I'm from, I live in Canada, that we don't actually regenerate genetically modified trees. I think there's been development of GM trees. In fact, even when I was an, a doctoral student in the 1990s, people were working on developing GM cottonwood trees and growing them in plantations in the south of the US and probably elsewhere in the world, New Zealand and so on, to create these fast growing fiber plantations. I, I think in that sort of very limited use, it's probably okay. But as far as forestry grow, goes and the conservation of forests around the world, it is not the answer at all. I mean, what we do do is we breed trees and that's completely different than genetically modified trees. GM trees are where we're tinkering with their genes. Breeding is that we're breeding for certain qualities. We're combining natural populations to, to get certain qualities. Like, For example, one of the biggest things that we've done is we've bred trees for fruit production or we've bred trees to grow for timber, for growing bigger and taller to create more wood products. I can see a role perhaps as climate changes and we're starting to get a little more desperate about sequestering carbon. We might do some breeding to put more carbon in the ground. So allocate more carbon below ground. I know that's kind of out there as far as forestry goes, like who would ever do that? But in the coming decades, we are thinking about those things. So I think there's a role for breeding. GM, I'm not keen on it at all. I think that there's lots of pitfalls there. And I think we've seen that in other kinds of genetic modified crops around the world. You know, when you get humans and you get the ability to be corrupt and to use GM to steal seed, to steal resources, to take away the rights of people to breed their own seed, we can see it all playing out in these other areas of agriculture that it can lead us down a fairly nefarious pathway. And of course, there's also well, the whole escaping into the environment of GM seed and reproductive organs that has got a whole nother story to it. Of course, and companies like Monsanto, they're not ecologically 
sound, their history is shameful. So I don't even like to think about that. You know it more deeply. We shouldn't tinker so much with nature because you're losing all this complexity that we don't even realize that is there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that there's the scientific part of tinkering with genes and it can be put to good use in certain areas. It's just that when you get people or when money is involved as well, that they get exploited and then we end up with mistakes being made and people suffering, right? Farmers can't even collect their own seed, for example. I can see that happening in forests, just like in agriculture, if it got to that point. So there's huge precautionary tales. But I think that breeding is something that we've always done. We've always done that kind of husbandry. And I think that's fine if it's done well and intelligently. But gene jacking, that's a different story. I agree. I think that there's so much that we can learn. Right now, regenerative agriculture is something Mm -hmm. that we're just beginning to understand that we have to have these complex ecosystems in order to Mm -hmm. better survive with harmony with our environment, to survive and continue with our increasing demand for food supplies. So what have you learned from forestry that can be applied to farming? Well, biodiversity matters a huge amount. And there's been a lot of studies around the world to show that diverse forests, diverse agriculture systems, agroforestry systems, any ecosystem, that productivity and health is correlated with biodiversity. The sort of industrial agricultural or industrial forestry approach to add fertilizers, to add water, to artificially augment these ecosystems ultimately kills off a lot of species. Below ground, let's just talk about the below ground food web. Below ground, there's all these trophic levels of soil organisms that feed on each other, their feeding levels. And in that feeding process, they cycle nutrients. That's a nutrient cycling. One organism eats another organism and any excess nitrogen is basically excreted back into the ecosystem, which is then available for plants to take up. So if you start dismantling that soil food web, suddenly the nutrient cycle doesn't work very well, right? If you add pesticides and you add fertilizers, suddenly you lose like two or three trophic levels in the soil food web, the system starts to unravel. And so then you've got to add more fertilizer and more pesticides to keep the pathogens out because now it's a leaky system with pathogens able to create in and take over some of these other niches that the healthy organisms were occupying. It's a slippery slope and it's not sustainable. If we're using fossil fuels to create fertilizers and pesticides to make these artificial systems grow food for us, ultimately they're going to collapse because we don't have infinite energy. We're going to poison these systems and the natural food webs that naturally drive them are going to disappear. So we need to return to these diverse systems that are able to do this themselves, create agroforestry systems for example, or agroecology instead of industrial agriculture so that the systems are resilient and are able to continue with their functions. Yes. And as humans, our senses are very dull. I remember visiting a farm and one patch of land had all these pesticides and fertilizers and essentially the soil was dead. And I didn't understand why no birds were landing. The farmer said, it's basically dead. This is the organic area there. And then all the mm-hmm. birds were flocking to it. But our senses are a bit dull. We don't know how to sense that. But animals know they'll just avoid it. And that's the danger. Well, we're creatures of this earth too. And yeah, we have kind of moved away from how we are part of nature. We've put ourselves in cities. We've also had cultural things go on, like separation of man from nature, the feeling that we're superior over nature, that we should have dominion over nature. These ideas have developed through Western science, through religion, through philosophies, Western philosophy, that man is superior to all other creatures. And that has separated us from nature. And then we exploit it because we think it's just a thing and that we're the subjects and that's the object. And we're going to take that object at our will. But we can't get away 
away from the fact that we are creatures of this earth too. We've evolved alongside the trees and the other organisms. There are phylogenies of how this evolution happened, but ultimately we have common ancestors. And when I talk to people about our role in nature, or even about this idea that trees communicate and have networks and they're like societies, people say to me, you know, I've always known that in my heart. I've always known that. So even if you live in a high rise in New York, even if you don't have a forest, you can go walk in, you still have that innate sense of connection because you're a human being. You've evolved from all these other things. So you'll never lose that. In fact, that's what the blessing is, is that we can easily relearn our place in nature and people need to be exposed to these ideas, remember them, help them to reconnect with nature. And once we do that, once we're successful at that, people will start caring more and not being so exploitive. My name is Jackie Lamb, and I am an Associate Environmental Podcast Producer and Interviewer at The Creative Process. I am also a rising senior at American University studying film and media arts. In high school, I was a member of an environmental conservation club called Tide Turners. At each meeting, we would watch documentaries that discussed issues facing the natural environment, such as deforestation. And from this experience, I was inspired to combine my interest in creative writing with my newfound passion for the environment. And in my junior year, I hosted my school's first ever environmental poetry reading. At this event, I wrote and performed readings of my own original poems about topics such as the environmental hazards presented by the Dakota Access Pipeline and the overhunting of buffalo. Since then, I have revised one of my poems, originally titled The Worth of the Buffalo, to better reflect the issue of deforestation. I will now read my poem with the revised title, The Worth of the Trees. Only when something is lost, do you truly miss it. Only when something is broken beyond repair, do you truly regret your actions. And only when something is gone forever, do you truly realize its worth because when that species is gone, you will miss it. You will regret your actions or lack thereof, but most of all, you will realize the irreplaceable worth of the trees. Now, back to the interview. And you do research with Aboriginal communities. Yes, I do. I've learned so much from them. Their worldview is that we are all connected together. We are one. Almost all Aboriginal languages have words for how we are all one and how connection in nature is essential, how forests and creatures have intelligence. They've got special words for this. And the English language doesn't so much. We're applying these English words to understand these phenomena, these incredible phenomena in nature. But the Aboriginal people are much more advanced in their language and understanding of nature than Western society. As people have expanded and dominated up a good part of the globe, it's our job, it's our responsibility to get back to those roots, restore those languages, restore those cultures that we are all part of. And there's a huge amount of knowledge, huge amount for helping us move forward and making a healthier planet. 
Well, you mentioned how people in the 21st century are sort of moving away from more natural surroundings to living in the suburbs and living in the cities, with some exceptions for individuals, companies, and governments, whether they're living in a city or a more natural surrounding. What are some steps that they can take Mm -hmm. to, if not proactively preserve the forest, Mm -hmm. to be more aware of how intricate the communication system is and how forests really have this mind of their own? Well, I think the first step is just go and be with them. Go find a tree, sit by a tree, be quiet for a while. It's hard for us to do in our completely connected internet society, especially right now during the pandemic, or on the other hand, pandemic is also a good opportunity to do this. Just go sit with a tree for 10 minutes and don't speak. Don't talk to your neighbor just sit there with the tree. I challenge people to do that. Just sit there. And before long, you will feel the tree. You'll feel the connection. The spirit of the tree will seep into you if you allow it to. It will become part of your heart. Your heart and the heartwood of the tree will blend into one. And then once you have that connection, you're not going to turn your back on the trees, right? It's like your child now or your parent or your society. So that's the basic thing to do first. Once we do that first simple, simple step, then we can be active. But until we do that, until we blend ourselves back in nature, it's too easy to turn our backs. It's too easy to continue on and just get back on our iPhones and say, oh, I don't care about what I buy. I'm just going to buy whatever that's available to me because I can. But once you realize and educate yourself and have that connection, then you start making choices. I'm not going to buy products that cut down old growth forests. In fact, I'm not even going to be a bystander anymore. I'm going to be active. I'm going to actively write to those protesters on Vancouver Island that are trying to save the last old growth forest. I'm going to donate some money to governments that are going to conserve the bushland in Australia. You realize that being a bystander or being inactive or not a proactive person to save or to help protect our fellow beings, our fellow creatures, our relations, then we're not being part of the solution. We're just being part of the problem. We all have a role to play. No matter how small, it's important. And the very first simple step is go sit with a tree. If you don't have a tree, sit with your plant on your deck. It's the same thing. Yes. And it's interesting how you say that to spend time near a tree, because I think in some level, the same way they draw the carbon out of the atmosphere, they must in some way draw in their wisdom and maturity, draw whatever might be toxic or too hectic in us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can feel it, right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that it makes you feel better when you go sit by a tree or go into the park. That's why we have parks with trees, because we know that they help us. And of course, now there's a lot of science that shows actually our physiological responses when we go, they call it forest bathing, where we have healthier outcomes. We have less heart disease, have less risk of stroke, less illness if we're able to go into forests or around trees on a regular basis or other plants if you're not in a forested kind of biome. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's essential to the health of ourselves as human beings to do this. And in terms of the Forest Stewardship Council, there's a few different bodies for regulating. And sometimes they've been criticized. People felt that they could be improved. I mean, that was general, but we could get more specific. What are your feelings on that? 
I think the intention was good with forest certification. The problem is that the certification standards aren't good enough. I think they've been corrupted by people that have exploited the idea of certification as sort of a buyer beware or like a list of ingredients on a package that you're buying. We can read it and say, well, this is what I want, but I don't want to buy something that's not sustainably harvested. The problem is that in Canada, everything is certified. How do you choose? You know, I grew up in that province of British Columbia of old growth forests. It's now a province of clear cut forests with plantations that are not very diverse. And yet every product, every single company there is certified as sustainable and it's not sustainable. So it's greenwashing. And I think the intention was good, but it hasn't worked. We need to revamp those standards and we also need to reinforce them. There have to be consequences if you don't harvest sustainably. And also the standard associations need to go monitor what's going on. But it's no good if the regulations are weak, the compliance is weak, and the enforcement is weak. Then it's no good. And I think that is where we're at. We need to revamp that. We need to relook at that whole thing. I think one of the alternatives to that, or in conjunction with that, we need to be able to value our forest more than just on forest products, these simple products like toilet paper and paper, you know, we need to value them for the life-sustaining systems that they are. The value of oxygen to breathe, how do you put a price on that? Well, we've taken it for granted. We've said it's free. It's not free anymore, right? Because we're destroying those systems. So how do we put a price on things? Well, one good place to start is we can put a price on carbon. Carbon is already bringing into the marketplace. I think it's a good idea. And the reason I think it's a good idea is that carbon is a good umbrella indicator of the health of ecosystems. Carbon reflects biomass production and biomass production is usually correlated with ecosystem health and integrity. It's something that's easy to measure and it captures all these other values. As a world body, we need to really pursue this and start valuing forests, putting a price on carbon. It's simple and it can be effective. Yes, we have to be really clear. I've been so hardened at having the opportunity to speak with people who really have committed their lives to these different fields like yourself. Mm -hmm. And it just helps us understand that there are many strategies we can overcome, you know, climate crisis, we have to call it what it is, or extinction, you could Mm -hmm. call it what you like. But when we have these clear models, it's really helpful. I think you're right, if it's clear, and I think governments need to get behind them. And the amazing thing about systems, we're a system, we're a social system, we're an ecosystem, we're a socio-ecological system, really, is that the way systems work is that if you put the right policies and practices in place, changes start to happen. And it can be really slow at first, but then it hits a critical point where it can improve dramatically. It can also collapse dramatically as well. And we think of tipping points as negative things, but they can be very positive things as well. So things like in the US right now, Biden rejoined the Paris Agreement. That was one small step in a good direction that will bring in other countries to rejoin or take it seriously. He's also said we're going to convert from fossil fuels to electric vehicles. I mean, if it's done properly, that's another really positive step and people will follow behind. There'll be resistance at first when that's happening, but slowly things will change. And then suddenly we'll get this huge positive benefit from it because of the way we're structured as systems. That's how it works. And that's the hopeful part about it is the way we've evolved is for that healing and that ability to change like that. 
And you're a great source of knowledge. And I know this is a parallel to what you do, but I have been hearing about interesting solutions and it's not just the carbon, it's the methane. And one solution I've been hearing about, they're like indoor farming that will cut down on methane emissions and there will be less transport, the food will be fresher. What are your thoughts about that? It's not, of course, a natural or completely natural ecosystem, but maybe it solves some of our forthcoming problems. Indoor farming? I actually don't know much about that. I think we have to be super careful about making sure that these ways of doing things actually do work. For example, in architecture, there's this idea of green buildings and making green farms and growing trees on buildings. And sometimes those systems can be so energy expensive. I mean, they look good. They make rich people feel good because they go, oh, I've got a tree. I'm doing my part. Actually, it's taking way more resources to give that rich person a tree in their condominium. It doesn't make any ecological sense. So we have to do the proper accounting. Before I can comment on indoor farming as a possibility, we have to do our homework. And I think we kind of get these ideas and we don't do our homework and we can actually make things worse than what our intention was to start with. I would say be cautious. I mean, maybe it's got possibilities, but I'm imagining it's going to take a lot of fertilizers, a lot of pesticides to keep the pests down. You're going to have to bring in artificial light. You're going to have to bring in a lot of resources. Why not grow an outdoor garden where you've got all those creatures that are doing it themselves and make the space for them and create that ecological system or recreate or restore it for the long term of our planet. That's a better way to go. That's my opinion without knowing much about indoor farming. So you mentioned that in order for both humanity and for the natural world to survive, we need to be more conscientious of what the natural world requires and the fact that resources are not infinite, they're finite. And in your book, you stated that this is not a book about how we can save the trees. This is about how the trees might save us. I think you've talked about this a little, but I was wondering if you could expand on that quote. Trees evolved from common ancestors to us. We evolved much later. It's because of the ability of plants to photosynthesize and create an oxygenated environment. That's the reason we're here is because of plants and trees. We're here from the grace of God of them. And it's going to have to go hand in hand, of course. We have to care for our relations, our trees. We have to care for them so that they are able to save us in order to create a a livable environment, a biosphere that is a self-regulated biosphere, like James Lovelock talks about the Gaia theory. We are all responsible for each other. And so, yes, the trees are ultimately what create a livable environment for us, but we equally have a reciprocal responsibility to them to help create a world for them as well. You really opened our eyes in terms of respecting that which gives us life. We should say that they're like our mothers. And sometimes as children, we don't always respect our parents. We learn when we become parents ourselves. Hopefully we learn. I think we're in this kind of critical learning period. This decade, they've been saying, and they've been saying this for a while, but I really feel like this is the decade that is quite crucial. Um, Mm. Hopeful. I mean, we've had a lot of technological advances. There's a crack of light there, but what are you hopeful about and what are you cautious about for the next 10 years and beyond? 
The hopeful part is that we are wired to heal. I actually use that phrase in my book, Finding the Mother Tree. Just as human beings, we're wired to heal. Our bodies want to be healthy. The forest, the ecosystems want to be healthy if you want to put intention in there. And all the systems have evolved that way. They've evolved for resilience. Otherwise, they wouldn't have evolved. They've evolved to reproduce and to carry on. They've also evolved these networks that I described in the forest, for example. Those are biological neural networks, just like our brains are biological neural networks. Our bodies are biological neural networks. All the microbiomes are the same. They're all wired along similar patterns because they're efficient at transmitting information. They're efficient at reproducing. They're resilient. In other words, they can recover quite rapidly. So it's pretty hard to destroy a system that's so highly evolved like that. It's meant to work. And that's the hopeful part is that if we let the system do its thing, we can even help that system along. And actually we have been helping ecosystems. We've been integral with ecosystems forever. A really good example is along the West coast of North America, the indigenous people have long depended on cedar trees and salmon trees. They're the people of the cedar and the salmon, the Coast Salish, the Haltzik, the Kwakwakawag, the Simsian, the Haida, the Tlingit. They're all people of the ocean and the salmon. With the salmon populations, the salmon, of course, live most of their life cycle out in the ocean. They come back and they spawn in the rivers. And the people depend on those salmon as their food. So they would catch the salmon. They have all these ingenious fishing technologies that they developed over thousands of years. One of those is called the tidal stone traps. And I know that there are other tidal stone traps in other cultures around the world, but the way that these ones work on the West Coast is the tide comes in, the salmon come in with the tide, and then the tide goes out and they get trapped behind these tidal stone traps. The First Nations people or Aboriginal people would take the fish they needed, but they always threw back the big egg-bearing mothers. They always threw them back to the ocean and that created bigger populations of bigger fish. So the populations actually grew and were healthier and abundant and the people were sustained with that. And of course, the salmon would migrate, these old mothers would migrate up into the streams, they would lay their eggs, and then the bears and the wolves would pick up the carcasses, bring them into the forest and eat parts of the salmon. But a good portion of the salmon carcass would decay and ended up in the roots and mycorrhizas of the trees and then into the life of the tree in the tree rings themselves. And then these trees grew big because they're nicely fertilized by the salmon. They shade the streams, which creates a nice spawning area for the salmon. So it's this big reciprocal cycle. That's a nurturing cycle. It's built to do that. We can do that as human beings and help our systems recover. And that's what gives me hope because we're smart. The systems are highly evolved. What makes me worried is that human beings also have a lot of inertia. Our societies have inertia in that we get trapped into these self-destructive systems. They're not regenerative systems, they're exploitive systems. And we build infrastructures around them, like fossil fuels. There's huge infrastructure built around maintaining fossil fuels. So how do you break that? It's like being a chain smoker. You got to break the habit. And it takes a lot of people and a lot of effort to work together to break those habits. But we can do it. So, you know, with proper leaders, proper hub trees, proper mother trees out there and people collaborating, it can be done. You've given us so much to think about. And with proper mother trees and proper teachers such as yourself, we can build a better future. So now as you reflect on your discoveries about plant communication and you think about the world we're leaving for the next generation, the future of education, climate change, how our systems need to adapt, 
to work in greater harmony with nature. What lessons have been important to you? You know, I think one important thing I'm thinking about right now, just after this conversation, is that I grew up as a shy kid. I was so shy, I could hardly speak until I was in my teens. And I hid behind my mom's apron for most of my childhood. I sucked my thumb until I was 12 years old. I don't think the expectations of me were very high in my family. And yet here I've become this person that has done this work and I'm trying to convey the importance of these old trees, for example. I became from a seedling that was nothing to a mother tree myself. So the lesson here to me, and I think to everybody, is that everybody has that potential in them. We have so much potential, all of us. We can all be mother trees. We can all spread the word. We can all do good things for the environment for our societies, because those things go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So we all play important roles. We can all be leaders in our own way in this movement to create a more sustainable human population within our sustainable planet. I think that that's so important. I've gone through periods of being quiet. I think that people who have emigrated sometimes go through those periods as we adjust. And I think yeah. silence is strength. Maybe you're just waiting for the moment. For me, mm -hmm. it's a sign of sincerity as well. You only speak when you mean it. So I find it very interesting that as you left behind some of your shy ways, you've matured into this translator for trees who we could say are silent, but stoic. Yeah, thank you. That's lovely. Thank you for that. Oh, well, no, thank you. It just seemed quite apt. Yeah. But of course, in the silence, there's that great wisdom. So I want to yeah. thank you for being a, a translator to us for the trees, the secret language of forests, so that we might better understand and respect their importance and how they provide life for us all. I want to thank you, Suzanne Simard and Mother Tree Project, for all you have done to help us understand the beauty of forests and plant communication, how connected we all are, and and that if we respect and work in harmony with nature, it can save us. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you so much, Mia. And thank you, Jacqueline, for those great questions, both of you. Oh, thank you. And I know that anyone who has a chance should go out and read your book, Finding the Mother Tree, or get involved. As you say, that's a step towards getting involved. And it's a, a wonderful story and ongoing project. And it really helps activate and inspire us to, to do our part to protect what protects us. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer and Co-Anchor on this podcast was Jackie Lamb. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.